as we come to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your word and I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to embrace, understand, believe. Father, I pray that your work would do that which none of us can do. That it would accomplish its purpose, that it would transform our lives by way of enabling us to know you better. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, uh, to the book in the Old Testament of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. I want today, if God will help me, to to work really through the first three chapters, the guts of it there. But I'll just read chapter 1. Jeremiah and... uh, Chapter 1, please. Hear the word of God. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in uh, Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Joash. I'm sorry, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, Behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put words in your mouth. See, I have set You this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you've seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north disaster shall let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come. And everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls, all around and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. But you, dress yourself for work, arise, and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, And the people of the land, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. Now, what I want to do in these weeks to come is to take up this Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah. 
I don't have a particular agenda. I've been thinking about Jeremiah for a while. For whatever reason, I don't quite quite know. He's been on my mind, this book, just a consideration. So I thought I would take it up. And we can't go wrong because it's in the Bible. It will help us. Um, But what do we expect to find? Well, first of all, we need to realize we expect to find a difficult read. It's difficult. Uh, It's ancient history. Surveys tell us that as Americans, we're not very good at history. We don't know our own personal history that well. If we look back into our families, we don't know our family trees that well. We don't know U.S. history very well. As Christians, we even don't know church history very well. Uh, and Old Testament history is difficult. It's, it's hard because the, the Bible isn't written as a history book per se that is to laid out from beginning to end chronologically. This happened first, second, third, fourth. We have all kinds of writings in between and all of that. And so it isn't all that easy to follow. So it's, it's a difficult read. It was written as a prophetic book 2,600 years ago about. That's when it... So it's difficult. It's, it's difficult because, in fact, it is prophetic. However, much of what was prophesied has already taken place. There was a prophecy about the, the deportation, the exile of Judah, ancient Judah. You remember that Israel, Old Testament Israel, uh, became divided into two nations, really. The northern kingdom to the north, the southern kingdom to the south. The northern kingdom retained generally the title Israel. The southern kingdom was known as Judah. There were times when they tried to join together as partners. A great deal of the time, they were adversaries. And so two nations in 721 B.C., you might remember, would be some time before Jeremiah was written, about a hundred years. Jeremiah comes on the scene at about 627 B.C. So it's 721 B.C., which was before 627 B.C. You know, when you're doing the B.C. thing, you're going towards zero. So in 721 B.C., the northern kingdom was, was taken over by the Assyrians, one of the great world powers at the time. And, and, and they were all exiled, deported, and so forth and so on. So it sort of got scattered. And now Jeremiah comes to speak to this southern kingdom of Judah. It's prophetic, but, but, but we see that his word to Judah was fulfilled. Basically, has been fulfilled. They were exiled. They did return. He speaks of a new covenant that is to come. We see that new covenant having come in Jesus, obviously. Not in its fullness, not in its consummation yet. So we're still seeing that being played out in some regard. And we'll see it when Jesus returns. But the guts of Jeremiah's prophecies come to pass. So why look at it? We wonder. It's not only prophetic, but much of it's poetic, which means it makes it that much more difficult. It's poetic not in the sense that it rhymes, but there are many figures of speech. And so always when we're using figures of speech, we wonder, what's that really mean? What's he really getting at? Is that literal? Is that figurative? How How do we understand this? So that makes it difficult. Also, not only that, but because of the nature of the prophetic word and because of the poetry involved, it isn't chronological. That is, chapter 1 happens early on, but, but then later as we read through, we'll find, well, this happens. But, but then we read some more and say, well, that happened before this and that before this. And so it's not always chronological. So that makes it difficult as, as well. We find that it's really long. It's 52 chapters and it spans uh, 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 the life of this man, Jeremiah, some 40 years. It goes from 627 B.C. to about 586 B.C. So that's a long time. 
great deal happened during that time. There was a whole shift in the superpowers of the ancient world. When, when Jeremiah starts, it's, it's sort of Assyria and Egypt who are the, the big powers. But, but through the course of his life, Babylonia takes over all of them. And, and so there's this huge change in superpowers in the course of his life. Religiously, a great deal happens. He comes on the scene, and when he does, he comes in the, in the beginning of, of King Josiah's uh, reign. And, and King Josiah, during his reign, there's a great revival that takes place. Because the, the, the book of the law is found in the temple. Go figure! Somebody found the Bible. And they found it in the temple of all places. And they began to read it and they began to follow it. And great revival took place in the midst of, 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 of Judah at that point in time. But then after Josiah, everything declined. It all declined again. Things got worse and worse so bad that in 586 B.C. the Babylonians did come. And by the way, the judgment of God did take over Jerusalem. Just as it said here, they sat out by the city gates and they they took over the city. and, And eventually all those, especially the leaders and the educated ones in Judah were were exiled, including Jeremiah who fled to Egypt. That's the last we hear of him. So it takes place over a a long period of time. So how do we get a grip on the point of 40 years of history of ancient Israel and God working through them? Now, I'm not going to take up Jeremiah line by line, because if I did, it took me a year to get through the four chapters in Colossians. So do the math, I'd be dead. So uh, uh, we'll take it up section by section, big section by section at least during this time that precedes and leads us up to Easter. We'll see how far we get. But, but it's long, so we have to have a long attention span. We have to keep after it over the course of these weeks. And then Jeremiah himself makes it quite difficult. I mean, there's no, no, no real uh, surprise if you read this prophetic book why he's referred to therein as the weeping prophet. I mean, he's not a glass half-full kind of guy, at least for a great deal of this, because the message that he's been given, the message that he's been given is that, that Judah's going to be judged. Just like, just like Israel was judged, Judah's going to be judged. And the very judgment of God is going to come, and there's nothing you can do about that. We cause the people to repentance, but, he, but they will not repent. And so he says, you, you call, and, and what that does is it puts Jeremiah against the priests, against the other prophets, against the kings, and, and against the foreign nations who have come, and everybody rejects him, everybody hates him. So that's the life of this man. And so, frankly, it gets pretty, it's a bit of a downer to keep reading about him. You, you want him to have a good day, you know. But that makes it difficult as well. So why do we put ourselves through this? So that we might know God. To know God as he is. Not how we want him to be. Not how we think he ought to be, but to know God how he is. There's an expression that's used about God that is this, that, that, that I believe in, the God, in, in God as I understand Him. Now, what does that mean? God, as you understand Him. Isn't God who He is? Whether you understand Him to be that way or not? Aren't you who you are? Even if somebody doesn't understand you to be that, they don't define you. Your life does. God defines Himself who he is. 
So we're not after God as we understand it. We're not after God as he ought to be, we as we think he ought to be. We're not after God as we want him to be. We're after trying to know who God really is. And that takes some work to wade sometimes into deep territory and to work this out. When people come to you and say, I know God is like this, don't you want to say, how do you know that? How do you know that? Well, we want God to reveal himself to us. We want to listen to who he is. And again, that takes place over long history as God reveals himself to people. And we come to the scripture. God reveals himself to the scripture. Why do we come to the scripture and not some other, some other book? Well, because there was one man who could say, I know who God is, I know what God is like, and I know it for a fact. And that man was Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, this book is God's book. He said, this is the book about God. In fact, he said, I'm the one who's come to reveal God. And if you read through all the writings that had come to his coming, up to that point, he said, if you read through that, they speak of me. And so you see, as we read through the Old Testament, we read about who God is, and all of that is reflected in who Jesus is. And so as he comes to reveal God, what we see is everything that's been revealed about God in the Old Testament context. We see God's creative power in Jesus as the wind obeys him, as disease goes when he says it should go, as life comes when he says life should come. We see all of that in Jesus. He's the one with creative power. He's the creator. He's the sovereign one. God is sovereign over people, over events, over circumstances, over all of life. We see that in the person of Jesus. We see the very holiness of God in him. We see the very grace of God in him. We see the very wisdom of God in him. And all of that is played out as we go back through the Old Testament and we read through the Old Testament. What do we see? We see God. We see His creation. We see His sovereignty over people and events and nations and all of that. We see His his holiness. We see His righteousness. We see His mercy. We see His grace. We see all of that being revealed and it comes to us in the person of Jesus. So we come to this book and we wade through the deeper sections even so that we can know God. We're always asking that question, what does this say to us about, about Him? And so here's what we glean from this opening part of the book of Jeremiah. We see initially in chapter 1 that that he lays out this list of kings. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to us. Josiah, Jehoiakim, he leaves out a couple who only ruled for a few months each on both sides of the reign of Jehoiakim. And then Zedekiah. But to them that made a great Deal of sense. I mean, if somebody came to you and said, you know, I, I worked during, the, during the, the administration of Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. You'd, you'd have a sense, if you knew anything about history, you'd have a sense about what that meant. If somebody says, well, you know, I, I lived really actively in, in my life during this particular span of, of, of presidents, you'd say, oh yeah, okay, I understand what that means. I mean, Jeremiah wrote in a time period that would span something like Nixon to now. 
So you can imagine all the things that took place to think that through. And they knew that. They knew of the revival in Josiah's reign. They knew of the decline in Jehoiakim's reign. They, they knew of the devastation in Zedekiah's reign. They knew all of that. And say, okay, I get it. I understand the times in which you live. And his calling was a sovereign one. God called him. And it shows that this book really isn't about Jeremiah. We aren't to leave impressed with him. We will be as a brother. But really it's all about God. It's God's work. When he comes to Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, uh, Jeremiah's probably in his late teens. Maybe early 20s at the best. And God comes to him and he says, I'm, you're my man, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says, I'm just a kid. And God doesn't coddle him. God doesn't... Uh, Say, oh, I think you need a hug. God doesn't say, no, Jeremiah, I called you because you're great. Believe in yourself. He doesn't say anything like that at all. He says, Jeremiah, take your eyes off yourself. Believe in me. I'm giving you a word to say. I'm commanding you to say it. You will say it. And he says, I'm going to make you the most powerful man in the world. Notice what he says. He says... He says, don't say I'm only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid of them, for I'm with you to deliver you. He says, behold, I've put my words in your mouth. I have set you this day over nations, over kingdoms, to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overflow, overthrow, to build, to plant. He says, I'll make you the strongest, most powerful man in the world. You'll stand up to kings. You'll stand up to kingdoms. And if you say to a kingdom, you shall be destroyed, it will be destroyed. If you say to a kingdom, you shall flourish, it shall flourish. If you say to a kingdom, you shall, you shall win this battle, it will. If you say you shall be defeated, it will lose that battle. Jeremiah, that's what I'm making you to be. And I'm going to give you a sign, an olive branch. The olive branches were the, generally the first to blossom. And in, a, in that sense, watched over all the other blossoms and all the other trees and all of the other bushes that would come out. So God says, what do you see? I see an olive branch. What does that tell you? It tells you I'm going to be watching. I'm going to be watching over my word to perform it. That should give him a sense of confidence. It isn't your word, Jeremiah. It's my word. That's what makes it powerful. This isn't about you. It's about me. And then he says, now what else do you see? He says, oh, I see this whole nation from the north coming. Yes, you do. And it's going to come against Judah. And that, that nation will be Babylon. And, and, and the, while that nation doesn't look so big right now, I want you to realize it is big. It will be big. It will be powerful when the time comes. And I want you to give this word against the nation, the people in which you live. He says, Out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I'm calling all the tribes of the kingdom of the north, declares the Lord. And they shall come. Everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls and around and against all the cities of Judah. And I'll declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. Now he says, get dressed for this work. I'm going to make you a fortified city. I don't know, God telling me he's going to make me a fortified city isn't all that comforting because what he says is you're going to have to be so fortified because everybody's coming against you, Jeremiah. Because though you're the most powerful man on the face of the earth because of my word that's in you, you will now become everyone's enemy. And they'll all come against you. 
So that's the setting. And in the midst of that, we're going to learn about God because the message that Jeremiah brings to the people of Judah recurs like this. You've sinned against God. You've sought other gods. You've played the harlot. In fact, that's the image that's here. But the image that's here in the relationship between God and his people is that of marriage. God being the husband, his people being his wife. And that's how it's all set. shouldn't surprise us. When we come to Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament, as, as, as Paul's writing about the relationship between God and his people, he uses marriage and he says... That, that the husband should be the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church and the wife should submit to the husband as the church submits to Christ and all of that. And the husband's love for his wife is, is the love of Christ that sacrifices as Christ is sacrificed for us to make us pure and holy and all of that. And so we're, we're reading down all of this about marriage. And do you remember what Paul says right at the end of that passage? He says, now this is a profound mystery. Now, I think it is a profound mystery how a guy like me could be head of my wife. It is a profound mystery how a woman equal to a man can submit to him in love. That's a profound mystery. That isn't what Paul says. He says, this is a profound mystery from speaking about Christ and the church. He said, do you understand that the relationship between husband and wife has been established so that you can learn about me, God says, to display my glory. So I want you in the midst of marriage to understand how I, God says, relate to you and you to me. And so in the Old Covenant, over and over again, God sees himself as the husband to Israel, sees himself as the husband to his people. Now what that does for us is enable us to to see the intimacy of relationship between God and us and us and God. The union that we have, the union that's there between us. And how special, sacred that relationship is so that when unfaithfulness happens, it's devastating. It is not a casual thing. So much so that when God speaks of sin, he speaks us, he speaks of it as our adultery. Now, that, that takes a whole different dimension. He says, when you sin against me, it's, it's as if you're the harlot, as if you've been adulterous, you've sought another lover. Don't you understand that we're in relationship together? When Jesus was asked to summarize the commandments, he said, the first commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. It's, it's love. It isn't just contractual. It's love. It isn't just functional. It's love. It isn't just, okay, God, you do what you do to help me and, and I'll go along with it and, and, and try to bring you glory. Isn't that? Is that we're united together in love. So to seek another one, to satisfy the longings of your heart that only God can satisfy. To seek another who can define your life as only God can define your life. To seek another to direct your life as only God can direct your life. To seek another to delight in as only you should delight in God is to be an adulterer. It's like that. And you see, that moves it just out of the, out of the dimension of just disobedience. I mean, you know, you can disobey the government by, by uh, not paying your taxes as you should or, or this or that. 
That's disobedience. That's wrong. It's it's sort of just wrong. But, But when you're an adulterer, it means you've betrayed someone who has loved you. And in this case, you betrayed God who has loved you perfectly. I mean, I, I know nobody wants to say I go to a church that makes me feel guilty. But you should want to go to a church <laughs> that at least points it out. But that's the sense of it, you see. That's the depth of Jeremiah. This isn't easy, and this, it isn't that hard to understand at times, but, but it's hard to embrace at times because you go, He's talking about me here. It's not just some ancient Israelite. He's saying, Bill, when you sin, it's like this. Because he lays it out, chapter 2 in Jeremiah. He begins with sort of the honeymoon period. Notice, I won't read all of this to you. But he said, the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your, of your youth, your love as a bride. He, he lays out the honeymoon time with Israel. He says, remember when we first got together? Remember when I took you out of Egypt? Remember how wonderful it was there? You know, you just I, I, I provided for you. I, I protected you. Anybody that came against you, I destroyed. I, I had passion for you, all of that. And and remember how good that was. And then verse 5, these devastating words. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? Now please, I'm sorry. If you've been in a relationship where your spouse has been unfaithful, you know how that feels. And I don't mean to raise that. But that's the sense in which that God is raising here. And every situation that I've encountered in my work in life, when someone has been the victim of an adulterer, that victim always asks, I don't know what I did wrong to cause him to stray. I don't know what I did wrong that caused her to Go after another. What's wrong with me? And you feel the betrayal in that. You feel the pain of that. And God says, God says, in essence, when you sin against me, what you're saying is, God, you're not good. Happened in the garden. You remember, if you read through the creation account, you read it, every refrain, everything that God created, he said, that's good, that's good, that's good. And he said to Adam and Eve, Adam, every tree in the garden is good for you to eat, save this one. That's good, that's bad, trust me, that's good, that's bad. And when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they say? They essentially said, God, what you said is bad, is good. You've lied to us. And what you said is good, isn't good, just to eat of those trees. And so when we sin, really what we're saying to God is what the adulterer says to the spouse. You're not satisfied. God says, that's what it's like, really. That's what sin is, really. And then there's this neglect in the relationship as well. Verse 6, he says, They didn't say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, and in the land of, uh, of, of drought and, and deep darkness, in the land that none passes through with no end. They never, they, they never inquired of me anymore. In other words, they, they simply neglected me. They, they never went back and, and thought about my goodness and our relationship. You remember the book of Revelation. The church in Ephesus, chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. 
John sees this church as one that had lost its first love. And, and there you have it. And the, the instruction to the church in Ephesus who had lost its first love was to go back and do the things you did in the beginning, which are what? Well, in the beginning of, of a marriage, what you do is that you marvel at the love of the other. You marvel at the goodness of the other. You marvel at the beauty of the other. You're enthralled with the other. So go back and be enthralled by God. They lost that. They forgot. They never went back and they were never again enthralled by God. Look at how great he is. Look at all that he has done. Look at his wonderful love for us. So then God comes down and makes a case for them in in chapter 2. In verse 9 he says, Therefore I still contend with you. I still have this, this, this case uh, against you. And, and he says, uh, just quickly, he says, you've treated me like no other nation has treated their gods. They, they have false gods, but nobody's treated their God the way you've treated me. You've changed your gods. Look at the pagan nations throughout history. They've stuck with their gods. You've left me for another. And he says, you've changed, you, you've, uh, changed your glory. You see, God is our glory. Our spouse is to be our glory. We're, we're to be proud of our spouse. We're to glory in them. We're to be their glory. He says, he says you've, in leaving me, you, you've changed your glory. Moses spoke to the people and said, what other God is there who's so close to his people? What other God is there who listens to his people? What other God is there who loves as God loves us? He's our glory. We, we boast in him. In fact, Jeremiah will say later in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, he says, Behold, the days are coming. Uh, I'm sorry, no. Uh, yeah, 23. He says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. He says, you've changed your glory. You should be living, walking around, saying to everybody, isn't God great? His steadfast love towards me. Who could love like that? His, his, his protection of me. Who could protect like that? His passion for me. Who could be passionate towards me like that? But he says, you've exchanged that. Because when you go out to be satisfied by others and you leave me behind and you live a life that doesn't reflect me at all, what you're saying is that God isn't glorious, that God can't satisfy, that God can't protect, that God can't provide, that God's love is useless and worthless and not satisfying at all. He says, that's what you're saying. And, and again, the point here is when we sin, that's what we're saying. And then he says in verse 13, he basically says, you're, you're just... But I use this expression. You're just stupid, he says. Think of it. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that no one, that, that can hold no water. He says, listen, it's like you're a person in the desert and you're at the oasis and you have all this water and it's pure and it's sweet and it's plentiful and it's held right there for you. And you say, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave here and I'm going to go and I'm going to get some pipes together with holes in them and try to collect the rainwater from the desert. And so when it comes, you lose it, and it never comes anyway. He says, that's what you've done. When you sin, what you're saying is, I'm leaving the source of living water, and I'm going to go and live in thirst. 
Because you think that you can do it better than God. What did your father see that was so wrong in me that they would leave me, he says. Do you think you're free, he says, but no, now you're enslaved. You think that you should, you can now serve yourself, but you can't. You'll be addicted to your sin. And then he uses this image, and I can't read all of Jeremiah publicly with children present because it's just amazing the kinds of images that he comes up with. But listen to this one in verse 23. He says, How can you say I'm not unclean? I've not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know, that, know what you've done. A reckless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month, they will find her. In other words, he says, you should be my people. You should be glorying in me. But what you're doing is you're going out advertising yourself. You're saying, I'll go with anyone. And so you put yourself in the position that it's not hard at all for sin to find you. It's right there. And you go right at its door. And you adorn yourself in such a way. You perfume yourself in such a way. This is, <laughs> just, just mingle me and sin. That's what it's like. He says, you've turned your back upon me. You've betrayed me. You've become this one who's an adulteress. And then, of course, Israel becomes defensive and says, oh, I really didn't do that. Can read the end of chapter 2. I really didn't do that. Not, not really. That's not really who I am. In fact, God, really, it's your fault. It's, it's really your fault that I had to go and seek and find another. God says, why do you contend with me? Why do you bring charges against me? How can you say that I haven't been satisfying? Don't you know who I am and what I have done for you? No. Chapter 3 begins like this. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? He says, picture this. A couple are married. The wife divorces him and she goes and marries another man. Will he ever take her back? The implied answer to that is no. How could he? It would be such a disgrace. In fact, if you read De- Deuteronomy 24, there's a law in ancient Israel that says you can't take her back. Because you'd be so disgraced and would disgrace God in order to do that. She's left you for another. What is amazing in what follows in chapter 3 is, God says to Israel, if you'll repent, I will take you back. Because I'm not like any man. That's amazing. So, verse 11. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. In other words, he said, listen, learn from the history of Israel. I divorced them. I, I sent them away. They're now in exile. They're destroyed because of what they did. You're the younger sister. Now watch it. Realize. Learn from it. Go to school on their situation. Be warned by what happened to them. Look what happened to them. They did what you're doing. What did I do to them? I divorced them. Now come on. But he says this. Go and proclaim these words towards the north, that is the northern kingdom. Return, faithless Israel. I will not look at you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. That's the mercy of God. 
That's the mercy of God to us. In fact, where we move to in this prophetic word, which is just simply so amazing, are these very, very familiar words where God says, Behold, the days are coming when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days. He says, I'll put my law with them. I'll write on their hearts. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I'll forgive their iniquities. And we get it. We see that new covenant in Jesus to be forgiven. What do I take from this? I realize that when I sin, what I'm saying to God is, you're not good. You're not trustworthy. You can't satisfy me. I do better on my own. I do better seeking my own passions. I do better making my own way. I do better following my own wisdom. That's what sin is at its heart. It's dethroning God. It's saying, you're not a good husband. You're not a good spouse. You're not good. But really what should be going through my mind isn't that there's something wrong with God, but there's something wrong with me that I can't be satisfied by Him. That I can't trust Him. That I can't seek Him. That I can't depend upon Him. That I won't follow His way. That I'd rather be angry than not. I'd rather be bitter than forgiving. I'd, I'd rather be selfish than compassionate. I'd rather be selfish than sacrificing. Because all those things seem right to me. But God says, no, I want you to be the other. And we say... Hmm, that wouldn't satisfy. The question is, what's wrong with me that I can't be satisfied by being compassionate? What's wrong with me that I can't be satisfied by being loving? What's wrong with me that I can't be satisfied by being sacrificial? What's what's wrong with me that that, that, that means I can't be satisfied forgiving? What's wrong with me? And he says, well, it's your nature, it's your sin. Let me come and transform. Let me come and cleanse. Let me come and... Let me come and forgive. And so as we come to Jeremiah, we are going to be turned inside out. I am anyway. Forgive the frivolousness of this, but sometimes I think when I read through something like Jeremiah, I'm like one of those cartoon characters where God grabs me by the tongue and flicks me inside out. Right? And we do it so that we can really know him. Because, you see, when we understand our hopelessness apart from God, then we know our hope in him more deeply than ever. We really live life then. Thus the depth. We, we can't take a casual approach to God. He isn't casual. God is serious. So he says, now come, 
Be transformed by me. Learn of me. We, we see this new covenant having come in Jesus. Remember the night that Jesus was betrayed to bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. He took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this cup to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant. That covenant that was promised, this new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. What do we remember? We remember the warnings of Scripture. Remember the warning given to Israel. Return. If not, you're exiled. The warning to Judah. Be faithful. If not, you'll be destroyed. The warnings throughout history, Revelation chapter 16 speaks of seven bowls of wrath that come through history. And if you read that chapter, the purpose of those bowls of wrath that come, there's all kind of devastation, all kind of destruction on the earth. The reason they happen throughout history, we've seen one recently in Haiti. Please not that Haiti's any worse than we are. God was going to judge on that, on that day, that would have happened all over the earth. And we feel for those who are there and are compassionate on all of that. But the message is repent. Not just Haitians, but Americans. <coughs> repent. Because the bowls of wrath that come from Revelation, in Revelation 16 that are talked about there, that come throughout history, all the devastations on the earth, is so that people will repent. And, and the sorrowful line in Revelation 16 is, they did not repent. This happened, but they did not repent. This happened. They did not repent. The sorrowful line in, in, in Jeremiah is, is of Judah. They did not repent. The sorrowful line there of Israel is they did not repent. And thus they were judged. And so we come to this table and we say, it isn't God's problem. It's ours. It, it isn't His fault. It's ours. It isn't that He's not satisfying. It's that we're not able to be satisfied through Him because of our sin. And so we come to Him to be cleansed. We come to be forgiven. We come to be transformed by Him. And we do that in Jesus. So that's our prayer as we open up this prophet. That through this we'll know God, His holiness. That through this we'll know God, His grace. That through this we'll know God, our sin. That through this we'll know God's redemption. More deeply. So that we'll never stray from it, that we'll fear no one but Him. That we'll trust no one but Him. That we won't play the harlot. That we... Won't sin. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us, that we could find great delight in you. How you define us, tell us who we are. How you direct us, how we're to live, that we find great delight in that and we would seek no other. That though we're tested in that, that when we're tested, that we would cling to you. We pray that when we would sin, we would ask your forgiveness on the basis of the work of Christ, his blood. We would receive it, be cleansed, and live in the great hope, the great hope that we have in him. Now, Father, I pray, not just as we begin this study, but on this day as we come before you, that 
We would know your holiness. We would know our sin. We would know the forgiveness that comes through Christ and that it would thrill our souls. That we would be content in all that you are for us in our Lord Jesus. Please take this bread, take this juice and set it apart in some way that only you can do that will enable us to know that we're present with Jesus here, that he's as close to us as this bread and juice, that his forgiveness is as close to us as this bread and juice, that his compassion is care and love for us. Father, that as we receive it, that we will know we've been with him and we will be filled, satisfied. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.